I want to take you into uh, Numbers chapter 6 today. We are beginning a, a new series just um, in the coming weeks. I want to begin to unpack a theme and beginning here with this particular chapter which sets the tone and the framework for the theme that we're going to be exploring in Scripture. I um, want to quickly flag what this is about before we read the passage. So um, Numbers is one of the the five books of the Torah, the law of God given through Moses. And in the book of Numbers, um, you come to this particular chapter where this very unusual provision is made for uh, individuals within the community of God to be able to devote themselves to God in a particularly intense and unique way for a season in their life. And it's described as um, the Nazarite vow. Now, um, I suspect that most of us have not, never really given this a great deal of thought, and I want to explain to you in a few moments after we read the passage why I'm doing this, but um, this week while I was um, preparing, one of our staff members texted me and asked me, what passage do I need to uh, put into the, the service plan for the guys um, getting everything ready and all that, and uh, so I just texted back number six, to which um, my dear sister replied, LOL, interesting. So, didn't necessarily feel an immense amount of encouragement in that moment, but um, I'm trusting that God's going to speak to us this evening. So do bear with us as we begin to explore something of the strangeness of the passage and the requirements that are laid down here. I'll try and explain a little bit as we go along, but I want to read to you um, from verse 1 through to verse 20. Begins in this way. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. It shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. And all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, not for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So it begins by laying out the stipulations of the vow. Now there's a little provision here for what happens if the person accidentally breaks the vow and comes into contact with a dead body, which, of course, was a great deal more likely in that day and age. It says, if any man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. So there's provision there for if the vow was broken, go back to zero, start again. And now the rest of the passage describes the closure of the season of this vow. It says, and this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been completed. It shall be brought to the, tent, uh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafered, wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering, and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and offer his sin offering, and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord, with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering, and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head, and put it on the fire. 
that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it's boiled, and one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite. After he has shaved the hair of his consecration, and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Let me pray. Father, as we begin to wrestle with the, um, un- the unusual stipulations that you laid down for these individuals, Lord, who wanted to follow you more wholeheartedly, I'm praying, Lord, that the, the timelessness of the reality of spiritual hunger and the urgency of the need to be devoted to you will resonate with our hearts today and the Holy Spirit will be moving and speaking to us. I pray, Father, that for many here, this will be a moment in which a choice will be made to follow you. Whether for the first time or as a moment in their pilgrimage in which, Lord, you come and establish your authority and your lordship over us in a new way. Bless our minds and our hearts and our ears to understand everything that we are contemplating in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, evidently, we um, ended our previous series last week, and I was obviously been praying for some time around what to do next and felt that it wasn't clear to me until just around a, a week or so ago. And as I was reading one of the prophetic books, the, um, the book of Amos, there in the second chapter is a mention, a very brief mention of Nazarites, this community within the larger community who are dedicated to God. And uh, the particular passage just references them as a way of grieving the fact that some of them had been tempted to, to give up their vows and to, to uh, relinquish their commitments. But immediately upon reading this, I, it felt like the theme just jumped off the page at me. It sometimes happens, and I immediately felt that this was going to be a beneficial theme to unpack, beginning here with the vow, but then moving into some of the stories of Nazarites in Scripture. There aren't many, but what is written of them there is very ins- full of instruction and, and challenge to us. And so it resonated with me on those levels, partly just an exploration as we begin to unpack this passage of what it means to be wholly dedicated and devoted to God, but then also to be able to look at that through the lens of individuals, flawed individuals, and their love and passion for God that was mixed, but also sincere in certain respects. Now, I think that there is something of this theme that just resonates with me personally, because I'm someone who um, I have a fascination with and some measure of affinity, I think, with people who seem to want to uh, be, be a little bit extra, I suppose, in their devotion to God. Uh, I'm not saying I count myself among them, but I have a fascination with such people. And uh, there are, you know, in history, history is full of the stories of men and women who have been wholly dedicated to God. And some of those are, are have lived lives that have made tragic mistakes and errors and been misguided in their passion for God. And think about some of the characters in the early church. There was a man called Oregon who um, was about 200 years after, after Jesus, a very influential um, preacher and theologian. In his intense desire to, uh, to be obedient to Christ and to quell lust in his heart, he took the unusual and not recommended step of castrating himself. He turned himself into a eunuch, quite literally. I've never been drawn to that decision myself, I'll admit to you. And I think it is an example of the kind of misguided ways that people have in their zeal. They've had misguided zeal. Another example is a man called Simeon of Stylites, who was a couple hundred years after Oregon, who lived an austere life and a very uh, devoted man, wanted to, to, to develop a holy life and a holy heart pure devotion to God. And he was getting frustrated with all the people coming to him for advice and coming to talk to him because he was obviously a standout individual. So in his frustration, he decided to climb up a stone column in the desert, and he lived up there for 35 years, having food winched up and down to him. Now, actually, that does appeal to me somewhat because he had some degree of separation from from people, which occasionally I do desire. But I do think as well it's something of a wasted life. 
So there are misguided examples throughout history of individuals who, um, in their passion, have directed it wrongly. But then there are also so many. Church history and the biographies of Christians are replete with examples of people who are worthy of emulation. And I could, we could talk about this all day long. Many of you would know examples that have been personal stimulus to you, heroes in the faith. And I, I think, for example, of a man like George Muller in the 1800s, a German who came to uh, live in Bristol and there set up an orphanage in a day and an age before uh, the existence of a welfare state where children would often be beggars on the street. Set up an orphanage and prayed for the many hundreds and the thousands of children that were looked after in that orphanage prayed in every single pound for their support and nourishment, didn't ask anyone for money, but simply trusted God. I mean, that is next-level dependence and passion. Then, even in our day and age, many of us have been encouraged and helped by the ministry of John Piper. And, uh, you know, a small decision that he made some decades ago and has been public about was his decision not to watch any television. And uh, he, he said, it just doesn't help me. It doesn't, doesn't help me stay on fire for God. And I think it's a small decision, but it's had big effects upon his life. He's, had a, he's been a model to many of us and an encouragement to us. And so these kinds of examples really, really get me going when I reflect on people like that. And I think that, you know, I'm starting from a conviction here that the world needs more people like this that it needs more misfits and eccentrics and radicals, people who are willing to be different for the cause of Christ and willing to set themselves apart in this way. So what I'm trusting is as we begin to explore this theme and this passage, we're going to first of all see something. We're going to see something in the greatness and the beauty of a life lived wholly devoted to God rather than to yourself. Some of you are not Christian. You wouldn't consider yourselves followers of Christ. And I think you will agree with me that the, pres- the, the overriding message of the day and age in which we live is that if you put yourself at the center, thinking of your needs, your desires, and center yourself as the, and prioritize yourself, that's the route to happiness and to fulfillment. And I want to say to you, friend, that that is the very opposite of the truth. That rather, in your life, you need to see and perceive something much greater and bigger than yourself that calls for everything in order to really experience fulfillment and joy in life. And that's the the essence of this vow. It resonates not only with us, if you're not a Christian, but also brothers and sisters here who are part of the church family. We need to be constantly reminded of this reality that our life is not our own, that we've been bought with a price, that God wants to call us entirely to himself. And so seeing this, I hope also that as we unpack this in the coming weeks, you're going to feel something of the, the Holy Spirit moving in your heart, speaking to you in specific ways, moving you to change in certain regards in your life. Today, as we um, begin with this passage, I want to focus on the meaning of the vow, its message then for us today and the resonance it has with us as Christians in the 21st century. Finally, think about the kind of motivations that would stir somebody to living in a more devoted way as these individuals did. Let's begin by thinking about the meaning of the vow itself then. What on earth was it given for? What was the purpose and the essence of of the vow as it was offered to these Israelites. And I'll just tell you a few things at the outset. One thing you have to understand is that this was entirely voluntary. There was nothing compulsory about this. It was an opportunity for individuals who felt moved in their heart and by the Holy Spirit to give something to God, in particular their time and dedication and service to Him. They had this opportunity to do so. It was entirely voluntary, although oddly enough, as we'll see, the only examples we have of Nazarites in Scripture were not voluntary. They were, they were offered by their parents at birth. So they had no choice in the matter. But actually, the vast majority of Nazarites were voluntary. Then, another thing you have to understand is that this dedication, this devotion, was over and above the ordinary life of worship. This is a vow that's offered to all Israelites, but 
they already had the rhythms and the structures of worship because they were God's people. Every one of them considered themselves to be a lover of God. And so they didn't necessarily need this, but what it did give was the opportunity for devotion that's over and above the ordinary life of worship. A third thing you have to understand was that the vow was time-bound, that it has a beginning and it has an end. Although, again, the examples in Scripture of people who offer themselves who are offered to God for their entire lifetimes. But, but most of the people who took this vow, it began and it ended. The Jewish Mishnah, the oral commentary on the Torah, um, gave prescriptions for 30 days, 60 days, or 100 days of devotion to God. But we also know, as I mentioned to you, there were lifetime examples, and there was an example at the same time as, as at the time of Christ, a woman called Queen Helena, who um, had dedicated herself for a seven-year period to be a Nazarite. And then at the very end of, her, of her, her, her seven years, as she's approaching the moment of sacrifice to end the vow, uh, she came in contact with a dead body and had to start all over again. Hit reset. It was like snakes and ladders. You go right to the bottom again. But there are different. It was a time-bound vow. Now, the most important thing, though, you have to understand, this is our window through which we need to understand the heart of God and what, what is being spoken to us today is this, that it is a vow of separation. You heard it in the language right from the start. A special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and so on. And it keeps mentioning this language of separation. And that is actually built into the word itself, Nazarite. It means to be separated or to be consecrated. Now, this gives us an understanding of what this is about, and you can think of it from negatively and positively. The negative angle is this, that it is separation from certain things. They were separated from wine and products of the vine. Why? Well, I assume because it was cutting off a level of pleasure and enjoyment that was legitimate to them under God, but that they deliberately cut off for the sake of greater gain. They were separated from razors so that they couldn't shave their hair. They would cut their hair at the beginning of the vow and then leave it untouched for the duration of the vow, which, of course, is a measure of sacrifice in that, in that it's, um, it, 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 it renders your appearance unacceptable and odd and strange. Many, I saw this during COVID as many people struggled with their, their inability to get their hair cut, and we saw a lot of people wearing hats, didn't we? Um, just ashamed of the barnet that was hiding underneath those hats. But this was uh, obviously a, way, a visible way of distinguishing, distinguishing yourself and looking a little bit ragged and, and unkempt, I suppose. So they were separated from, from wine. They were separated from razors. They were also separated from dead bodies. Now, for most of us, that's not much of a problem, is it? Because we don't particularly come into contact with the dead. But in their day and age, of course, the dead were... It was a more common reality that people died. People died in infancy. Your relatives died when they had sicknesses. There was death all around. And there were cultural norms that you had to participate in in terms of the grieving process of, 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 of uh, sitting with the dead and, and uh, marking their passing, which these Nazarites had to, had to remove themselves from that whole social norm. So there were all these ways in which they were separated from. There was a distancing. And here's the thing you have to understand, friend. These are symbols. They're symbols of what it means for the man or woman of God to be distinct from and cut off from and separated from things of this world. It's not that the particular symbols are the important thing here, but that the essence of it is that there is no holiness to God. There's no dedication, devotion, or life of worship to God that doesn't involve a measure of separation. Things to which you say, no. That's the negative. The positive, and I think in a sense this is even more important, that they were separated for God. They're saying no to wine so that their mind could be totally unsullied in devotion and love for God. They're saying no to, to the razor so that their head could be marked by the symbol of their devotion to God. And it's interesting, isn't it? As the hair grew, it would mark the amount of time that they had given to God as a very visible measure 
of their devotion. As they were distanced from dead bodies, they're saying, my life is yours. It's not to be contaminated or defiled in any way by sin or death because I belong wholly to God. And friend, this is what I want you to understand then about the meaning of it, why God offered this. Holiness to God, dedication to God, separation to God is, has both this negative and this positive element, but the positive one is what is driving you. God is calling us all to a life of love and devotion and separation to Him. And I think in some ways, you know, as Christians, we, we can be chastised, can't we, by the examples of people in the world who are more passionate about their pursuits than we are about Christ, who are willing to separate themselves for worldly gain. I think about sportsmen and women, for example, who, to achieve a level of elitism in any sport or athletic pursuit, they must live a life of separation, a life that's of separating from certain certain pleasures and indulgences and a life of separation for the passionate pursuit of excellence and strength and skill in their particular field. I can talk to you more about this afterwards if you want to know more about the mind of an elite athlete. But there are those people, there are those who, um, who, who have been dedicated and the world's been changed recently by, by individuals who have been immersed in the world of computing and built up the, the various systems and software. Think about Bill Gates and his team in the early days who worked almost every hour of the day and barely slept as they were so devoted to their, their practice of coding and therefore changed the world by their single-minded devotion and passion for their pursuit. We think about a journalist who has, journalists who've changed the world and won Pulitzer Prizes and influenced society. These men and women do not get there by accident. They get there through sacrifice, through single-mindedness, through living strange lives that are often cut off from social norms and, and find themselves deep in the field investigating this, that, or the other thing. And you see, what I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is that we see this and we admire it, the exceptional examples of men and women out there in the world who are separated from certain things and separated for something because they're driven, they're passionate, they're longing to achieve something with their life. And in a sense, it chastises us, doesn't it? Isn't Christ worth it? Isn't he worthy of so much more? Isn't he better? Isn't life for Christ of eternal significance in our love and devotion to him. And Christ calls us to this, friends. He calls us to this, and nothing less than this. Think, for example, of the way Jesus spoke to individuals who wanted to become his followers. I'll read you just one example. There are a few of these examples, but here's one. Someone came to him and said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. He says, I want to be your disciple, but first of all, I just want to go back and say goodbye to my mom and dad, my brothers and sisters, my friends, because I know that I'm going to be on the road with you. Now, that to me sounds like a completely reasonable request. And how does Christ then answer? He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Someone plowing a field, manually driving and manipulating a plow, would want to ride straight furrows in the field. And in order to do that, they couldn't look to the left or to the right, and certainly not behind them. They had to keep their eyes fixed with a singular gaze forward. And Christ says, that is the image of what it means to be my follower. You cannot live a life of distraction and deviation from that single-minded pursuit. This is what I'm wanting from you, friends, he says. This is, I think, the essence of the vow. It was for men and women who felt that urge, that call, that longing, that moving of the Holy Spirit in the heart to say yes to God more wholeheartedly with more of a singular vision, to separate themselves, therefore, from certain pleasures and conveniences and social norms in order to wholly embrace a life of service and love and dedication to God. Isn't that a compelling image? It stirs me in my gut. That's the meaning of the vow. Now, what then of its message 
to us in our day and age because evidently we don't live under the Old Testament law. And I'm not sure that there's really an option to literally fulfill a Nazarite vow today. And we know that in the New Testament, the, the last person that we read of to have, uh, have fulfilled the Nazarite vow is, is the Apostle Paul. In Acts 18, we're told about his visit to the temple and the shaving of head, and he returns later to make sacrifices. But of course, the temple doesn't exist anymore. And therefore, the, the stipulations of the vow are impossible to keep. It's not possible. But I don't think it's the, the, the particulars of the vow that really matter. What matters, as I've already said to you, is the symbols, the meaning, the, the heart level dedication and devotion that the vow speaks of. And I want to explain this to you through in a few ways. The first way you need to understand this is that it speaks to what you are as a Christian. Now, hear me on this. In the nation of Israel, they had these distinctions that within the people of God, the, who are the Israelites, most, the vast majority of the, commun- of the communion were ordinary believers in God going about ordinary lives, pursuing ordinary purposes, holy to God. But there was a distinct group within the people of Israel, the priesthood, a small minority who were holier than others because they were more separated, which is the meaning of holiness. They were more separated to God, and the holiest of them all was the high priest, descended from Aaron. Now, here's what's interesting about the Nazarites. They were this kind of in-between group. Because they were lay people. They were ordinary Israelites. They weren't the priesthood. But when they made the vow, they voluntarily offered themselves to God to become as holy as the priest. And not just as holy as the priest, but as holy as the high priest himself. And we know this because of the sacrifices, which I took the time to read to you at the end, despite the temptation to skip through. I wanted you to hear all of the intricacies of that process that ended the vow, because it it matches exactly the sacrificial process that the high priest had to go through in offering his life to God. And so here's the message. It's saying to those ordinary Nazarite, those ordinary followers, Israelites who become Nazarites, that they are as holy as the high priest himself in the offering of their life to God. Now here's the connection with us living in the New Testament era. Perhaps the most important Nazarite who ever lived was John the Baptist. Well, think about his story in in the near future. But Christ says this interesting thing about him. He says that of those among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Christ esteemed him as the highest and most important person who'd ever lived to that date. But then he adds this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, I understand that to mean that what Christ is saying is that even the most ordinary believer is more holy and more privileged than the greatest of the Nazarites who ever lived. Which means this, that for you and me, There is nothing, we are never less than these Nazarites. That your privilege, becoming a follower of Christ, you are royalty, that you are adopted, that you are a holy priesthood, that you are the people of God. The privileges God puts upon you, consecrate you, and call you to a level and life of devotion that eclipses even the Nazarites and the priesthood of the Old Testament. Because even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. I think that as Christians, part of the Christian life is allowing these realities to settle into the deepest part of your heart. So that even though your life seems to be a contradiction to the fact that you are special in these certain regards, as you let this truth settle into you, it calls you to be what Christ sees you as. You're holy, friend. You are consecrated. You belong to God. Every part of you, if you've given your life to Jesus. Now, this brings me to another aspect of the meaning then. That when we read passages like this, 
And we see visible representations of what it means to live a dedicated life. It's like a goad. It prods you and provokes you to live a life in keeping with your status. And I say this because I know, I know my own heart, and I know that the challenge that we have as Christians is that even though we can accept the truth that we are holy priesthood unto God, we're also aware of the ways in which our hearts, minds, lives are in contradiction to that reality. Our love for God may have grown dull. Sin may have gotten its ugly tentacles around you and entangled you in mistakes and errors that you cannot seem to get rid of. You feel yourself wanting to live a life of security and safety rather than a life of dedication and single-minded devotion to the Lord. Now, how does God begin to take his people who are the, the, the holy Nazarites of God's people, the church, how does he take us and begin to shake us out of the lethargy to become what we are in Christ? One of the answers to that is he puts, portrays before us the examples of individuals who, who have lived for him without reservation. This is the meaning of a passage like this. When you're reading your Old Testament readings and you come across this, you're meant to be provoked and stirred. Because, friend, the New Testament call to be a disciple of Jesus is not less than this. It involves these two dimensions that I've been describing to you of separation from and separation for. You see the separation from in what Christ said about discipleship. Hear these words, Mark 8. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Being a follower of Christ isn't the one-off decision at the beginning of your Christian life to turn away from certain things. It's the ongoing daily crucifixion of the flesh in order to continually put to death those things that you know are displeasing to God. There is a separation from. And that's a lifetime of work and, and decisions. But there's also separation for, isn't there, in that Christ is calling you to deeper devotion and love and worship. Hear what Paul has to say in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... Christians, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That verse could be a description of Numbers chapter 6, but it is addressed to you and to me. You're not only to say no to certain things that would entangle you and distract you and call you away from Christ. You're also to say the yes to him. Say, I'm yours, God. I want my life to be a life of worship, a life of devotion, a life of sacrifice, a life of, of adoration. To say, Lord, I belong to you, body and soul. Everything that I am is yours, O God. And so what this vow does then, and its meaning, is it, it tells you what you are, it tells you then to grow into what you are. But one more thing I'd add to this. It also gives you some insight into how you're called to grow. What it looks like for a man or woman to, to progress in their life and devotion to the Lord. And here's what I'm seeing here. When God is stirring you, and the Spirit of God works in our hearts. The minute you're a believer, a follower of Christ, the Spirit is in you. He is moving you and shaping you and growing you. When the Holy Spirit is awakening you to a desire to grow more in depth of love and devotion to the Lord, how do you accomplish that? And part of the answer, of course, is that it isn't something we accomplish. It's the work of God sovereignly in, in us. There are heart changes that take place within you quite apart from any decision you make. Being a spiritful person is having that transformation of heart as God manipulates and molds you more into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God doesn't give up on you, even when you fall away or backslide or run away. He is perfecting what he began in you. That's the promise of scripture. If he called you into his family, he doesn't give up on you. He is both the author or the beginner of your faith, but also the completer, finisher, perfecter of your faith. So some of it, you know, and this is where all credit goes to God. God is the one who is perfecting us. But that isn't the whole answer, is it? Because the other side of it is that you also, as a follower of Jesus, are called to make 
certain decisions. That you are called day after day and in certain key moments of your life towards certain commitments, even promises, as you offer yourself to God. I think we're slightly wary of of this, partly because we know that nobody can grow holy through a sheer act of the will. It's not, we don't have the ability. We need God. We're dependent upon him. I think we're also conscious that Christ said not to take oaths. So whereas I'm reading about a promise here in number six, didn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, don't take an oath, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Actually, I think he was talking there about truth-telling. And I want to just resurrect here before your attention that the importance, the vital importance within the Christian life of being ready at moments in your life to make concrete choices, decisions, even promises before God. Now, think about this with me. What is a promise? What is a promise? What is the point of a promise? A promise is... The voluntary decision to bind yourself and to limit your freedom for some greater gain. I think that when a person marries, this is what they do. The nature of the promise is the the voluntary limitation of freedoms. You're saying, I will not turn my gaze or my attentions to anyone else in this world. Why? so that you can enter into the deeper intimacy that comes through faithfulness to one person for the rest of your life. An intimacy that is impossible when it's mixed with an unfaithfulness to, our, to, to the spouse. When you enter into a career path, there are certain promises you make. Some of them are explicit. You sign contracts Some of them are implicit in your single-mindedness and devotion, the willingness to cut off other options to pursue a certain path so that you will attain success and promotion and distinction within that particular career path that you have chosen. I want you to see the 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 normalcy of this, that we make these kinds of commitments, promises, decisions all the time. And now hear what I'm trying to say, friends. You cannot be passive in your Christian walk. There come moments, almost countless times in the life of a Christian, but also particular forks in the road in your walk with God. When you have an opportunity to say yes to him in some clear way. You see, nothing of Christian obedience is is prescribed in the sense that you are under a legal system that tells you what you must and must not do, but rather all of it is the voluntary giving of your life to God, and that requires you to wrestle with his call and to choose him. Are you lost in the mire of complete spiritual wasteland and and a lack of progress. Are you, you know, that expression, the doldrums, was when a sailing ship might find itself out at sea without any wind. And sometimes that could be a situation that would last for, for weeks on end. The sailors sit on a bobbing ocean, not going anywhere. They describe that as being in the doldrums. And for some of you, that might be a description of your spiritual life. When God is calling you and moving you by his spirit, growth into Christ-likeness is the willingness to, to embrace his will. And sometimes that will require radical decisions, violent acts of cutting off certain things from your life in order to fully embrace the will of God. And sometimes it will not be the extraordinary decisions that seem to be violent and world-changing. Let's just be the momentary, small things where you remember a prior commitment. You say, Lord, I've, I've already decided this. My heart is for you. I love the example of Jonathan Edwards in this. Jonathan Edwards was a, um, a preacher in the 1700s in the United States who was also a, a, 
a very prodigious author and writer and philosopher and was probably one of America's greatest thinkers and has had an extraordinary influence internationally. But it all began with this heart of devotion to God. And among his writings are a series of resolutions, 70 resolutions, in which he made decisions at moments in his life for Christ. I'll read you a few of them. He says, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That was number seven, resolution number seven. Number 37, resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed, wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I've denied myself also at the end of every week, month, and year. A resolution towards self-examination. Number 52, he says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. He didn't actually live to old age. He was killed in a trial of a smallpox vaccine, which he volunteered for. But he'd lived a significant life by that point, dying relatively young. And because he lived with this sense of, I want to live for Christ. Resolved, he said, to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. I want to know God's word. My brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't, He never departs from you if you belong to him. And he is working in your life. And there are things he wants to do and to accomplish in you. And he is calling on you to cooperate. He's calling on you to participate and to be active in your growth. And to choose him and to resolve for him. And to make commitments which you will not waver in the fulfillment of. He wants you. He wants you entirely. He says you're mine. And I want to do something with your life. That's what this vow is about. And that's how it speaks to us in our day and age. Christ doesn't want us to live passively. He doesn't want us to drift. He doesn't want us to to wake up in 30, 40, 50 years time and think, what did I do with my life? Why didn't I live for Jesus? He wants all of you and he wants it now, today, here. And you cannot regret that decision. You cut that thing out of your life that's ruining you. You can't regret that. Because Christ will do something better. You say yes to him wholly, without reservation, without fear, and in faith. Watch what God does with and through you. That was the heart of this vow. Doesn't fear kill our longing to follow Jesus and, and, and quell our intensity? Perfect love casts out fear. When you love God with all that you are, fear doesn't have the last word on you. That's what it's about. Let me bring you finally to the motivations. Because this is everything, friends. Because the vow is voluntary and not compulsory, the motives are everything. Because a person had to be drawn and to choose and to will for this. And that's the same is true of us, isn't it, in our following of Christ. And I I can think of both wrong motives and right motives that need to correct the way we think about offering our lives to God. The wrong motives are things like this. That it's wrong to to be driven by a desire to atone for the past and for the sins you've committed. I could well imagine somebody offering themselves in a Nazarite vow of a desperate desire to feel clean and to feel that they're atoning for the years that they've wasted. A friend, that's never an option. The sacrifices at the end of this vow are proof of that. The only way you can be clean is through the shedding of blood. And for us as believers, that's the blood of Christ shed for us upon the cross. Never engage with God on the basis of a desire to atone for your own sin. It's been done. It's been done. 
Be free of that driver. Another wrong motive is the admiration from others. I think it's an inherent risk, isn't it? When somebody is more wholly dedicated to God, especially when it has visible symbols like this. There must have been a certain kudos attached to becoming a Nazarite. That within certain circles you gain the admiration because it's very visible. A person could see, oh, there's a Nazarite. They've got crazy hair. And so you'd walk around, somewhat feel a little bit proud of your crazy hair. And, and attract the admiring glances of others because of your wholehearted dedication to God. Now remember that Christ had no time for this. Think about his teaching on things like fasting. When he says, you know, don't look gloomy when you fast. Don't walk around feeling sorry for yourself. Saying, I'm, I'm fasting today. But have a smile. Put on some aftershave, he says. And dress nicely. So that no one knows, because it's for God. It's not for admirers. When you give, Jesus said, don't give so that people can announce you've given. Because if you do, the praise that you receive from others is all the praise you're going to get. That's all the reward you're going to get. He says, when you give, give so that the one hand can't see what the other hand is doing. It's like you're giving, and you can't even see it happening. But it's just a freedom to give, because only God is watching, and he rewards people who give in that way. When you pray, he said, don't pray on the street corners to be seen and admired by others. Now, I don't think you get particular admiration in London if you pray on street corners. You get, you get locked up or, or get, you get uh, one of those ASBOs, you know, antisocial behavior order or something like that. But it, whatever, the re- whatever the relevant crossover is in our day and age, don't practice your godliness to be seen and admired by others. Don't, don't try and be exceptional so that people will admire you. It's always a temptation, isn't it, in devotion to God, the longing to just be be admired by others. And that brings us to another wrong motive, the one of pride. I think this is an inherent danger when we're talking about passion and love for the Lord, that that there can be that longing towards exceptionalism. I want to be different from everyone else. I want to stand out. I want want to be uniquely passionate and radical and devoted. Jesus says, don't be like that. He lampooned it, actually, when He describes a Pharisee going into the temple to pray and praying like this. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. And God can't hear that prayer, the prayer that's so full of admiration of oneself. So you can see how the human heart is so wicked. We can turn a good thing into an evil thing, can't we? We can turn devotion to God into something corrupt and selfish, such as the the inherent bent of our hearts to want to glorify and honor ourselves. But friend, that doesn't mean it's wrong to be devoted to God. There are good, right drivers. Things like a longing to obey the promptings and the the inclinations of the Holy Spirit who is communing with your spirit, calling you to devotion to God. The privilege of sonship within God's family means that God comes and takes residence in your heart by his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one at work in you. You are a spirit-filled believer if you belong to Christ, and you can have more of God's Spirit as well. But here's the key of walking with the Spirit. You need to listen to him. You need to obey him. You need to stop resisting him. You need to be responsive to him sensitive to his leadings. And the Holy Spirit is calling on you. I know it because he is doing this work in all of us all of the time. He is calling on you in some specific ways even right now. Be mine entirely, he's saying. Another right motive is love for God. Didn't Christ say it? That the highest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'll tell you this, that love is a greater motivator than any other motivator towards a life of unique devotion. The people we most admire in the world are people who are so passionate about what they do, that drives them to that exceptionalism. They love what they do. You can't take them away from it. In a sense, that's the image of the Christian whose heart is called after God. It's not that they're driven by duty, by grim determination, by grittiness, or by fear, or by anything negative. It's because they love him. And being nearer to God and fulfilling his will and offering yourself to him 
is the overflow of love towards him. And there is some strain involved. I don't think you can think about love as something sentimental or mushy. Heart, soul, mind, and strength means vigorous, strenuous desire to follow him. Finally, a right motive is the longing for holiness. Jesus called, about, he called this one out in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When your appetites and your longings are directed towards a life of godliness, that's when you experience satisfaction in life. Everything else is a lie and a mirage, which is why you've never found it if you've been pursuing other things. But when you begin to feel an awakening, I want to be holy. I want to be a godly person. I want to be pure. I want to be Christ's entirely. Oh, my friend, that is Lord driving you to himself. What about you? Well, I'll finish with a word of comfort. You're going to fail, friend. You are. All of us will. The intentions behind this vow are good, but we all fail. And the examples that we'll see of Nazarites will illustrate failure. We fail. We fail all the time. Christ is the only true Nazarite. Not that he had to take the vow itself, but he's the only person who ever lived who was entirely separated from sin and separated for God. He was the embodiment of this vow. What it means to be a follower of Christ is that you are now hidden in him so that even your meager, faltering, weak, inadequate efforts to live for God are perfected in Christ so that the Father smiles on you and delights in it. Every yes to him is a pleasure to his heart, even though you fail, even though you're weak. He says, yes, my daughter, my son. What is God saying to you, friend? What is he calling you to separate yourself from? Answer it in your heart now. And what is he calling you for? What devotion does he want you to set yourself apart for? What resolution, what commitment, what promise does he want you to run hard after? May the Lord enable you to fulfill these desires by the power of his Spirit at work in you.